Acts chapter 4, verse 1 to 31. Verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and captain of the temple and of the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Verse 5, on the next day of their rulers and elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done on a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which you must be saved. Verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that they may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak to no one, to no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak what we have seen and what we have heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, 
who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Verse 27, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through, your, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is God's word. Today, we'll continue um, our sermon series um, called uh, The Church Unleashed, and Minister Jeff will be preaching to us with a sermon entitled, The Message is Confirmed by Bold Witness. Minister Jeff, over to you. Tamerlan the Great was a conqueror in the 14th century, and he nearly killed off Christianity in parts of Asia. He was called the exterminator for his massacres and persecutions. Now, Samuel Moffat, he was a Princeton professor, he, he talks about this guy in his book, A History of Christianity in Asia. And he, he makes this point about evangelism and the church. He said, what finally withered the proud advance of Christianity across Asia was not the persecution of a Tamerlane, though the permanent effects of that ravaging destruction still linger. More crippling than any persecution was the church's own long line of decisions to compromise evangelistic and missionary priorities for the sake of survival. The lesson here is that the command to evangelize and to proclaim the gospel is paramount, particularly in a, in a context where the church is facing an incredible amount of opposition. What we see in and this example is that it was the church, ironically, compromising on its mission that led to its own demise. It was no longer a church unleashed, but actually a church that leashed itself. Our passage this morning continues the narrative from last week when Minister Cola preached. Peter and John, they had been proclaiming the gospel in Solomon's portico. They had just healed a lame man, but, but now trouble awaits them. So if you have your Bibles, we're, we're in the beginning of Acts chapter 4. Peter and John have just been arrested. and They're facing opposition and arrest for boldly proclaiming Jesus as the risen Savior. So what do they do? What is their response? In much of this passage, Luke is recounting this exchange between the, the Jewish leaders and, and Peter and John. And they're being told, stop talking to others about Jesus. But the sense we get from what the apostles had been doing before they got arrested, and even in their response to the Jewish leaders, is this. Not speaking about Jesus 
is not an option. Remember, if you remember back to the first message in this sermon series, we talked about the identity of the church. They're God's people. Then the mission of the church, which is to be Jesus' witnesses. Jesus himself had commanded his followers at the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts 1-8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so what are they witnessing? What, What is it that they are proclaiming about Jesus that they cannot just keep to themselves? There is salvation in no one else and by no other name. In verse 2, they're teaching the people, they're proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, what that means is not simply that Jesus was raised from the dead in the same way that someone like Lazarus in John 11 was raised, but that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead, which was this belief that uh, sin and death have been defeated in the cross and will be destroyed in the new creation. And with the new creation, believers will experience a future bodily resurrection that will be glorious and powerful and transformational. And it begins with Jesus. Later on, as Peter and John, they stand before the council, the Sanhedrin, these rulers and elders and scribes, he says to them, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Back then, there were probably a bunch of other people named Jesus, but Peter makes the point that it is this Jesus from Nazareth who is the Messiah. This is the Jesus whose crucifixion was plotted by the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. This is the Jesus who God raised from the dead. This is the Jesus in whom salvation is found, and by his name are we all saved. He is the cornerstone. Peter's referencing Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Back then, builders would construct a building, and if they found a stone that was unsuitable for their purposes, they would get rid of it, reject it. Maybe it was cut improperly, or or maybe it didn't fit the position in the wall that they thought it would fit in. And so, They would discard it, and then another builder would come and see that stone and think, you know, it it could work as a cornerstone. There's a couple different types of cornerstones, but one of them is, is actually a foundation stone. It's the first stone laid at the corner of where the building would begin. When you lay the cornerstone there, it establishes the site. It determines the direction of the new building. And in Psalm 118, if you look at that particular passage, it's it's also about a king who is celebrating God's intervention in redeeming him from humiliation and giving him a place of honor. So all that is feeding into Peter's application of this psalm to Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. He was cast aside by the rulers and elders, by the people. He, He didn't fit their picture of a messiah. 
And yet God vindicated him by raising him from the dead, exalting him. And, and as the cornerstone, he establishes the site and direction of the new building. Or, or maybe we should say a new people. A, a people that are marked off as followers of Jesus, witnesses to him. Now, in our passage, the word name appears six times. It appears a lot. And it's all referring to Jesus. The Jewish leaders inquire by what name did the disciples heal the lame man. Peter says it's the name of Jesus Christ. The Jewish leaders tell them not to speak to anyone anymore in this name. The disciples pray that God would continue to do miraculous works through the name of Jesus, just like the healing of the lame man last week. There is salvation in no one else and by no other name. It's Jesus. That's what makes Christianity different than every other religion, right? And yet oftentimes it doesn't always seem that way from what we hear. You know, don't we sometimes hear or even think, or we hear other people think, aren't all religions the same? I've heard it this way before. It's as if God or whatever you would call God is at the top of a mountain and all the religions are at the bottom. One religion will take one path up and another religion will take another path up. And we all have different ways to get up the mountain. Maybe it's being super righteous. Maybe it's helping others. Maybe it's looking deep within yourself for meaning. But they reason, ultimately, all the religions, we all end up at the same place, making our way up the mountain. But actually, the disciples here, they're proclaiming something entirely different. You see, the God at the top didn't wait for us to find him. Didn't wait for us to make our way to him as if we could. He came down the mountain to where we are. And the Bible, the gospel, is the story of that, a unified story of God coming down, making a way to him, and that way is through Jesus. Only Jesus. So not speaking about Jesus is is not an option. And what are we saying about Jesus? Salvation is found in him and by his name are we saved. But that's a, that could be offensive, right? And so in Acts, what we see is the disciples continue to proclaim Christ and we find there's opposition to the gospel message. What the disciples were proclaiming was offensive and invited opposition. It was offensive to the Jewish leaders. Uh, the idea of a crucified Messiah turned Jesus from a cornerstone to a stumbling block. And it was also offensive to the wider Roman society, which was pluralistic. One uh, society in which uh, all gods, any gods were worshipped. And that also included proclaiming Caesar is Lord. And so that kind of pluralism didn't quite work with those who followed Jesus. They couldn't proclaim both Caesar is Lord and Christ is Lord. Now, for the Jewish leaders, they're kind of in a bit of a quandary because you you have these disciples who are teaching the people about Jesus and about the resurrection of the dead. And at the same time, you experience a miracle that had just been performed. Verses 14 to 16. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, 
they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. The Jewish leaders are asking, by what power was this healing done? In their minds, it's either going to be God or the devil. But if it's God, the miracle then kind of seems to affirm what the disciples were teaching. And that kind of puts the Jewish leaders in a bind because they don't like what is being taught about Jesus. But at the same time, they can't deny that a God-given miracle has accompanied this teaching. And so what are they going to do? What can they do? They can't really punish them, the, the disciples, Peter and John, so they tell the disciples not to speak about Jesus anymore. Verses 17 to 18, But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. This sort of opposition as silencing comes across in many different ways. For the disciples, it was the ruling authorities that sought to silence them. Even today, there are countries that actively seek to oppress and silence Christians. There are missionaries that go and serve in these countries despite the challenges and opposition they might face because they believe that not speaking about Jesus is not an option. What about us today in America, though? I reckon a lot of us might not want to call what we experience persecution or oppression, especially when we think about our brothers and sisters overseas and what they have to endure. And we're also, a lot of us are probably sometimes cautious about having this evangelical persecution complex, as if to say that, you know, in order to be saved, we need to suffer, which is, you know, not the gospel at all. At the same time, opposition to the gospel might come across in more subtle or passive ways. It might even come to the point where we feel the need to silence ourselves. In a Christianity Today article, uh, one of the authors cited this Middle Eastern underground house church leader. And he said this, uh, Persecution is easier to understand when it's physical. Torture, death, imprisonment. American persecution is like an advanced stage of cancer. It eats away at you, yet you cannot feel it. This is the worst kind of persecution. And I find that really fascinating or interesting. When you have people who are being actively persecuted overseas and say something like, you guys are in a much worse position. Samuel Moffat, he, he again makes a similar point in his book as he, he was exploring the different reasons for the failure of Christianity in Asia around the 1500s. And he says the church might have better withstood violence. Sharp persecution breaks off on the tips of the branches. It produces martyrs and the tree still grows. Never ending social and political repression, on the other hand, starves the roots it stifles evangelism, and the church declines. Not speaking about Jesus is not an option. That's to say that there is an obligation to continue witnessing. 
verses 19 to 20, Peter and John respond back, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we, of what we have seen and heard. Now, maybe you were wondering at the beginning why the first point of the sermon, I phrase it as a double negative. Because double negatives are confusing, right? Not speaking about Jesus is not an option. And the reason for that is because Peter and John are using a double negative. They literally are saying, we are not able to not speak of what we have seen and heard. And again, I, I know double negatives can be kind of confusing, but they're using it this way, they're phrasing it this way to really intensify and emphasize that they have to testify to Jesus. They have an obligation to continue witnessing, to continue boldly proclaiming Christ. It's like uh, maybe when, when you hear some good news, right? Uh, and you have to tell someone. And it's that feeling that you, you can't keep this to yourself. Now, it's not gossip. It's news. It's good news. And so it's public. But not everybody, not everyone knows about it. But you're like, they need to know. Maybe it's like, oh, I got into this college or so-and-so is having a baby or, or maybe like the YouTube show, Some Good News that John Krasinski started at the beginning of the pandemic. Spreading good news. The, and the disciples are proclaiming the best news. They're proclaiming Christ. And in doing so, Luke highlights their, their boldness. This word boldness shows up three times in our passage and five times in the book of Acts. And they're kind of short, so actually let me read a couple and we can kind of see what's going on here. So verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Verse 31, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And even the last verse in the book of Acts, when Paul was imprisoned in Rome, it says, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What is boldness, though? In much of the New Testament, it's this openness of the mission proclamation. It's speaking about Jesus with clarity, without reservations or modifications or hemming and hawing. It's proclaiming the gospel with a sense of candor, candor and straightforwardness. I mean, look at the example of Peter and John is in our passage this morning. They point out, you crucified Jesus. You rejected him as the cornerstone. They say, there is salvation in no one else. And even after all that, when the authorities say, there's nothing we can do, you're free to go, just don't talk about Jesus. I mean, the disciples could have been, I don't know, really Chinese and say no without saying no. But instead they say, what you're suggesting is putting us in a position where we listen to you or to God. We won't stop. 
we can't stop. I can't really imagine that going too well today. Now, let's be clear, just because the, the gospel is offensive doesn't mean you have to be offensive. But in sharing the gospel, we don't compromise its message even as we are careful in how we communicate that message. There's a distinction there. Now, as we look at this passage too, boldness also seems to be associated with being uneducated. And that's strange. Verse 13, what does that mean? Their boldness was surprising to the leadership, not because Peter and John were uneducated in the sense of being uh, unintelligent or illiterate. It was surprising to them because they perceived that Peter and John had no scribal education. And therefore, they would not have been expected to speak with such boldness to those who did, to people who had more status than they did. Ordinary, common people like Peter and John, they would have been abashed before these leaders, floored in in their presence. But Peter and John weren't. They had no problem just going up and proclaiming Christ. It's breaking down our expectations of what it takes to be bold. You don't have to go to seminary to be bold for Christ. You don't need a master of divinity to say Jesus saves. Even if you are talking with people who in society's eyes are superior to to you, you can still be bold for Christ because our identity is not derived from that, but from God. Penn Gillette, he's one of the magicians of Penn and Teller. And he's pretty outspoken about being an atheist. Now, many years ago, he put out a video where he was sharing about a Christian man who who came up to him after a show and he gave him a Bible. He described this man, he was kind, saying, not not defensive at all. And and Penn showed that he, he shared that he really appreciated that. And in the video, he talks about how he actually does not respect Christians who don't share the gospel. He briefly addresses people who might not want to talk, talk about their beliefs because, you know, it would make it socially awkward. He addresses even fellow atheists who think people shouldn't share their belief and they should keep it to themselves. And even though Penn himself doesn't believe in God, he says, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Now, you look at this guy who goes up to a celebrity after the show to share his faith. That's that's not what you expect. That's not what you go to the the show for. I think that's maybe even the, the type of astonishment that I think the Jewish leaders had when they saw Peter and John's boldness. They weren't expecting to that. Maybe it maybe it makes us uncomfortable, though, because we think about Jesus not as a universal truth but as a private preference. It would seem arrogant to anyone to tell others that blue is the greatest color and the only color we should wear, or that New England farm ice cream is the best ice cream, or that you should only eat mint chocolate chip, or dare I even mention pineapple on pizza. Maybe it makes us uncomfortable because we think about Jesus not as a universal truth, but as a private belief. And so our belief in the way the world is, our worldview, needs to be kept to ourselves. 
That's what we're told, and at some point, that's what we start telling ourselves. But really, the irony and maybe even the inconsistency of what's happening is someone else's worldview is then being imposed on us. We have to accept their view. We believe and proclaim the gospel not because it's a preference, but because it's true. Not speaking about Jesus is not an option. And if that's the case, then we really need to pray for boldness. Peter and John are released, and immediately they, they go to their friends, they pray together. They pray for boldness. There's two things I think that are worth mentioning here in their prayer. The first is that God is sovereign. That's, that's how they begin their prayer. When they're released, they go to their friends, they reported uh, what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The disciples are experiencing opposition. But note what they pray about. God is in control. They pray scripture. They mention Psalm 2. It's another passage that talks about the vindication of Jesus. And, and even they, it adds the futility, the futility of opposition against God. Even though in this city they were gathered together, Herod, Pontius Pilate, Gentiles, and the people of Israel, all of them came against Jesus to crucify him. And yet God was in control. God raised him up, vindicating him. And they pray this because in some sense it gives them assurance that even in the midst of opposition to the gospel, God's plan would go forward. God is sovereign. When we speak about Jesus, God is faithful and sovereign if we do face challenges or opposition. When we speak about Jesus, might we have that assurance and faith that what we are speaking about is true. They continue also in their prayer now. They petition God for boldness. And this boldness comes from the Holy Spirit. And it's really interesting what they're asking about, though. They don't pray against their persecutors. They don't even pray away the threats. It's as if, you know, they assume it's, it's going to be there. The opposition's going to be there. But they, they pray that God will look upon their threats, meaning that God would show concern and intervene. How? By granting them even more boldness to continue to speak God's word. That God would also accompany this proclamation of the word with performance of miracles. 
to really confirm the, the authenticity, the legitimacy of the gospel. Just like what we saw in chapter 3. And their prayers were answered. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Not speaking about Jesus is not an option. But sometimes it will feel like an option to refrain from sharing about the gospel. And when we do, let us continue to pray for boldness and for faithfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your good news, the best news. We pray that you would instill in us a desire to share that, to share Christ with others, and that you would give us, as the church, more and more boldness to proclaim your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.